The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I think as most of you know, we are in the midst of this brief series that we're doing in the month of uh, January, uh, and it's called The Church, God's Wisdom on Display. The theme that we're exploring is the topic of uh, community, community. The defining verses for the series on community is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, 10 through 11, where it says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be na- made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I've been saying throughout this series is that Christian community at its core is a work of God, not of man. And it was accomplished by Christ's death on a cross. In reconciling us to God, Jesus also reconciles us to one another in his family. And what Paul describes as the tearing down of the walls of hostility that once separated us from each other. Last week I pointed out how God had declared all food to be clean, opening the way for the Jews to have fellowship with the Gentiles. That in the Old Testament age, one of the ways to keep them apart, to preserve his people and protect them from the negative influences of the pagan countries around them was through these food laws. But by basically declaring all foods clean, he was entering in the people of God, to a whole new era of fellowship and communion with each other. And through a vision that God commanded Peter to eat all of these animals that the Jews considered to be unacceptable. And Peter responded in horror at the thought of eating these animals. He said, never, I never put anything unclean in my mouth. And what God said is, what I declare clean, don't call unclean. You need to eat this food, Peter. And that was basically leading him into witness to the Gentiles. And as we looked at that struggle that Peter had to eat this unclean food, I think it points to the wrestling that needs to go on in our own hearts of the struggles that we have of accepting other people into our fellowship, whether it's because of the food that they eat or the color of their skin or their education or income level or their political views, whatever that makes us uncomfortable to connect with them. Mentioned last week that as a community, the church ought to demonstrate supernatural breadth. In other words, there ought to be something distinctive about the diversity of a church, showing that it's not just the natural affinities that bring us together, that just because we're, we're just like each other and we want to hang out with each other, that we form the community among ourselves. Now, as I said last week, this doesn't mean that you can't have friends that look like you or share your interests, um, who have your same political views or same shared history. But if that is the extent of your relationships as a Christian, then I think the Bible says, then something has gone wrong. If the only people that you are in fellowship with 
are the ones that think just like you, look just like you, act just like you, then there is something wrong. And the goal of the church isn't diversity for diversity's sake. You know, like, you know what we need to do is get more white people in our church, you know? And, and then we need to find ways to get black people to be worshiping with us. And I, that's, that shouldn't be the overt strategy of a church. But what the Bible suggests, though, is that diversity becomes the natural outworking of people who are simply living out the gospel in their lives. I wanted to kind of explore this a little bit longer before I go into the main point of what I want to unpack today. Uh, this journey of trying to become more multicultural or multi-ethnic as a church has been an interesting journey for me personally. Um, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to be part of a church plant that largely came out of a Korean church. Can you figure out where I am there? It's a, Boy, it was back then it was like denim was the thing, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was interesting because the majority of us that were doing this church plant came out of the Korean, this Korean church that was down there at Champaign-Urbana, University of Illinois. And so during the planning phase of the church plant, it was repeatedly emphasized to the leadership team that we don't want to be an explicitly Korean ministry. But we want to be more multi-ethnic. And so we really took great pains to eliminate any overt expressions of Koreanness, whatever that meant, you know? But what was interesting was at the time of the launch service, when we had our first service on campus, we didn't have a name yet for the church, okay? The, the pastor was still praying about what to name the church. And so the students that was put in charge of preparing a bulletin for that Sunday He didn't know what to put down on the cover of the bulletin. So he took liberty without asking anyone else just to put a temporary name in there. And the name he wrote down on our very first bulletin was Korean Christian Fellowship, okay? (laughs) And when we all saw that, we were horrified. (laughs) We were like, this is exactly what we said we weren't going to do, you know? Um, And then in that first worship service, the presider kept referring to the bulletin as the jubal, you know, which is the Korean word for bulletin. And so throughout the service, he kept saying jubal, jubal, and every time everyone cringed. And then afterwards, all the non-Koreans were like, what is a jubal? You know, and then they were sort of trying to figure out what in the world we were talking about. Well, you can guess what the big agenda was for the leadership meeting that week after that launch service. And that became a regular routine in this first year of the church plant was basically trying to drum out all the Koreanness out of our natural instincts because we had been worshiping at a Korean church up to that point. Years later, when I pastored a largely Filipino church, we had to deal with the same issues. Can you actually see some people that you recognize there? You see Jamsi and Andy and Trisha and some of the ICC people are in that picture. Um, when I pastored this largely Filipino church, It was the same issue of culture and ethnicity, except this time with Filipinos instead of Koreans. And sometimes we would, as leadership, uh, hear from the non-Filipino members of the church during the fellowship time how they felt excluded because everyone in the table was speaking Tagalog with each other and they felt excluded from that conversation because they couldn't understand what was being said. 
And so one of the things that we had to repeatedly say to the particularly older Filipino uh, members of the church is, could you please try not to speak in Tagalog? during the fellowship time because there are non-Filipinos who don't know what you're saying and especially when you laugh, they think you may be laughing at them or something like that. And so we had to really talk about this kind of stuff. Sometimes the non-Filipinos would complain that certain foods smelled very strange and was off-putting to them. So we actually had to create a blacklist of dishes that you were not allowed to bring to church because it smelled too much, you know? And this was sort of the journey was to figure out What are we going to do to really address the Filipino issue, you know? Um, And let me say this. As a result of experiences like this, unfortunately, I came to equate the goal of multi-ethnicity with a need to hide or even be ashamed of our native culture, okay? Especially if it was the dominant one, you know? It's like, we got to make sure we're not a Korean church or a Filipino church or whatever it might be. And I want to say this. I don't think that is the picture of diversity that the Bible offers us. I think there is definitely a sensitivity that we need to have toward other cultures, especially when we are part of the majority culture. You know, It's interesting, but you could say the majority culture is always the invisible culture. It's, it's so prevalent that you don't even recognize it if you're part of that majority, okay? It's not until you're the minority that it really highlights what the culture of the church is. So we ought to go out of our way to welcome and be inclusive to other groups, especially the ones that are likely to feel marginalized in our midst. But I also want to say this. When we become Christians, it doesn't mean we cease to be Koreans or Filipinos or Chinese or Indians or white or black or Hispanic. In heaven, we won't all be changed into a single race of people. But when we look at the vision of John in the book of Revelation... It's clear that that picture of heaven shows that people still have their distinctive ethnic appearances. That's why John could say, I saw people from every tribe and nation and tongue. How could he say that if he didn't recognize that people look differently in heaven? I would say that the diversity of cultures that we have even in this room, in this world, is a beautiful expression of God's creativity. And so I think the challenge for us as a church is how do we celebrate the diversity of the body of Christ in a way that doesn't cause us to suppress our own cultures? And I'll be honest with you, this is a journey for me too. I'm not exactly sure what this means, but we ought to, as the people of God, learn how to celebrate each other's cultures, not be embarrassed or apologize for them all the time but learning how to actually celebrate our cultures and the unique ways that God speaks to our culture and yet still be the body of Christ and celebrate diversity in our midst. I'll be honest with you, this this is a tough journey for me too because for many years I felt like I ran away from my Koreanness. I grew up in a largely white neighborhood, in a white school. I even attended a white church for about six, seven years. And so I just didn't feel Korean inside. And when I suddenly got pulled back into the Korean community, I felt like a foreigner there. And there were a lot of aspects of Korean culture I didn't like. 
all the bowing and everything and all the honorific stuff, just, it wasn't in me, you know? And so I would look at that, and the truth is there was a lot of it I disliked. But part of, I think, when we talk about diversity is not trying to quash out all other cultures and saying, ah, oh, no one is allowed to talk about that because we're trying to be multi-ethnic. But it's how do we actually celebrate what we have here in our midst, you know, and really honor that and yet still be respectful to one another as a single family of God. And I think that's the journey that we're invited to. Although God is the one who creates the community of the church, we also have a responsibility as we saw in Ephesians 4 verse 1 through 3. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We do not create Christian community, but we have a responsibility that's God-given to maintain the unity that was created by the way we treat one another. And as I shared last week, I think one of the ways we accomplish this is through the ministry of hospitality. To show hospitality is to extend the benefits of community to someone who is outside our normal social circles. In other words, to someone who we would normally not share that level of fellowship with. It literally means love of strangers. That's what the word hospitality means. It's the love of the stranger. And so, as I shared last week, my hope is that every Sunday when we gather, instead of just immediately, instinctively getting into our usual huddles, that there would be Christ in you that compels you to look around and say, who is it that I could welcome? Who is it that I could bless and make them feel at home here in this church family? And I hope that it extends beyond just Sunday services. I hope that it would go into the Monday through Saturday as you reach out to the people that maybe you know the least in the church and extend a hand of friendship to well, so the last two weeks, we've been looking at this picture of supernatural breadth or diversity. But as a supernatural community created by God, the church ought to also demonstrate not just supernatural breadth, but also supernatural depth. And others are talking about the commitment issue. There ought to be a depth to Christian relationships that stands out in the world. Um, I said last week that what we have in common through Jesus ought to be greater than any of the differences that divide us, whether it's race or gender or life stage or common shared interests. But here, let me follow up on that statement. If that statement is really true, that what we have in Christ is more important than anything else, then that ought to be reflected in the content of our relationship with one another. Let me try to illustrate it like this. If a bunch of ICC men get together and we're going to have fellowship and all that's talked about that night is sports. <laughs> Who's going to be the next Bears quarterback and still glowing in the joy of the Cubs victory or whatever it might be and thinking about the roster for 2017? Then what does it say to the guy that's there who isn't into sports at all, Right? It sends a pretty loud and clear message that you don't really belong with us here if you can't talk Chicago Cubs and inside baseball stuff. Or if a bunch of women are talking after small group 
And the conversation only centers on marriage and children. What does that say to the unmarried or childless women in that group? It says, you know, you don't really belong with us. Listen, hear me out. I'm not saying that we can never talk about these things. You know, it's like suddenly now, next time you go to small group, you go, oh, okay, I was going to say that, but I can't say that anymore now. Um, listen, there are appropriate times to talk about shared interests or sports or politics and things like that. What, what I'm worried about is that's all we ever talk about. If Christ never enters the conversation... Can, can we really say that it is Christ that binds us together? If the core of what brings us into fellowship with each other is Christ, then Christ ought to be the center of those relationships with each other. In other words, I think we need to learn how to have intentionally Christ-centered relationships with one another. And I'm not quite sure that that captures the true essence of what we often label as fellowship in our midst. Tony Payne and Colin Marshall um, use this metaphor of the trellis and the vine to help us understand the nature of the work that is done in churches today. Do you guys know what a trellis is? A trellis is basically a wooden or metal framework that gardeners or landscapers will put on a property basically to provide a structure so that vines and other plants can grow on them, right? And so what Payne and Marshall say is that basically you can divide all church work into one of these two buckets. It's either trellis work or it's vine work, okay? When we talk about trellis work, we're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about logistics, uh, it's, in other words, all of the logistical work that needs to be carried on in order to let the church function smoothly as an organization. And the truth is, there's a lot of trellis work in most churches, okay? There's a lot of trellis work in ICC. It can include work like finances and budgets, refreshments, ushering, printing programs, property maintenance, event planning, seasonal decorations for holiday services, and the list can go on and on and on and on. This is what we would call trellis work, okay? It's all the infrastructure, the logistics to keep us moving as an organization. On the other hand, vine work is directly related to helping a person grow spiritually. So we could talk under vine work about preaching and teaching and counseling Correcting and disciplining, intercessory prayer, okay? Typically, I don't like that categorization, but sometimes we would call that spiritual work, right? Which I don't really think is a very good way to portray it. And so the way that most Christians put this picture together goes something like this. The lay people, the church members, the average church member is responsible for the trellis work. We need to be the ones who are doing the ushering, setting up tables, we're the ones that are manning the AV booth, and we are looking over budgets, and doing the, we're, we're the auditors, we're the accountants of the church. So we do the trellis work that paves the way to let the pastors and other leaders do the vine work of shepherding, counseling, correcting, teaching, preaching, prayer, okay? 
Tony Payne and Colin Marshall write, many of us minister in contexts where the unspoken or even spoken assumption is that it is the pastor's job to build the church and the member's job to receive that ministry and to support it through involvement in a range of jobs and roles, counting the money, organizing morning tea, ushering, serving on committees, and so on. The pastor or pastoral staff team is really the one who does the vine work, and the rest of us do what we can to maintain the trellis. But I want to argue that that is not the picture that we're given in Scripture of what it means for the body of Christ to come together and serve. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16, we find these words. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The picture that we see here in these verses that I just read is of every Christian participating in what we're calling vine work, helping one another grow spiritually, supporting each other in any way that we can. And at the heart of that vine work, I would argue, is this speaking the truth in love speaking God's truth into one another's lives. That's vine work. Now listen, I don't want to diminish trellis work. I don't want to devalue it. I am thankful, genuinely, for everyone in the church that brings food each week. I mean, God knows what a labor of love that is. Some of you probably get up at 6 in the morning to prep that food for the ushers that come in early each week to greet all those who come through our doors to worship with us, for those who assist us in the finances of the church, okay? God knows I could not do that work. This is all valuable work that we need for the overall ministry of the church, this trellis work. My point is not to take away from those ministries, but to hopefully open your eyes to see that even as we serve in those different infrastructure or logistical ways, We are also called to this vine work of helping people grow in their faith. That is not just a mandate to pastors and to other leaders. I want to make this statement that just about all the growth and change that we experience as Christians can be traced back to the Holy Spirit's power at work in us through God's word and prayer. And that vine work is what God invites us to participate in, not just pastors, not just leaders. I really want that to soak in a little bit because I realize that we're fighting the gravity of a huge church tradition not to see things in this way. It really is, you know, this mentality for the average church member like, I would be willing to come and set up chairs 
I'd be willing to put some food on the tables or to clean up afterward. But are you actually asking me to counsel a fellow church member or to speak a word of admonition, warning to someone who is really not living right before the Lord? That's, that's not my job. That's the pastor's job. That's why we pay you, is to do that work that we don't want to do or we can't do or we don't feel qualified to do. I mean, didn't you go to grad school for that to learn how to do that work? And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, this professionalization of ministry in our day. Let me give you just a small picture of what this vine work looks like as it's described in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Do you hear that? Paul is telling all believers, be so absorbed in the word of God so that you can teach others and speak, even sing God's truth into their lives. That vine work cannot happen if we're not ourselves immersed in scripture, in the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here, Christians are commanded to pursue those that may be heading down a path of a hardened heart or falling away from God. And he says, you as a believer, encourage and warn them to turn back to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, leadership doesn't even enter into the discussion here, right? It's all these one another's that should be happening in the midst of the community of God's people. He says, make the sacrifice to invest time in meeting with each other. Don't give up on that, as some are tired of doing. But keep meeting together for the purpose of encouraging one another. And it says, it says consider. It's another way of saying, think about it. Figure it out. Dwell on how you can spur your brothers and sisters in Christ to keep living faithfully for the Lord figure out how you can encourage them to keep pursuing God. That's a mandate to every Christian that we ought to be doing to one another. Ephesians 6, verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Again, the command, regular Spirit-led prayer for other Christians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. 
Here's the truth is when you talk with a friend and they're pouring out their life to you and they're talking about some major decision that they have to make and they say, what do you think I should do? You know, how do you think, I don't have a clue what you should do because I don't even know what to do in my own life. How am I supposed to advise you for yours? But what we see here is the specific prayer for God's wisdom on that person, for others. May God help you to discern what his will is for your life so that you, in all that wisdom and understanding, may know what the will of God is for you in this season of your life. And that's a prayer that you can offer as a ministry to somebody else as they let you know the decisions they're wrestling through in their life. Mark Deaver and Jamie Dunlop said this, the New Testament describes how Christians are to confront, to encourage, to discipline, to confess sin, and so forth. In the church, we want to see relationships where it is normal to talk about spiritual things. Not where a conversation is never about football or kids or politics, but where a conversation with no spiritual grounding would be unusual. As Denver and, uh, as, as Deaver and Dunlop point out, there are moments when we can talk about politics and sports and other shared interests with people. But my hope at ICC is that it would be the unusual conversation between two ICC members that never at some point leads to talk about God and the things you're going through and the prayer requests that you have for your life. Tony Payne and Colin Marshall say this, Despite the almost limitless number of contexts in which it might happen, what happens is the same. A Christian brings a truth from God's word to someone else, praying that God would make that word bear fruit through the inward working of his spirit. That's vine work. And that's what you and I are invited to participate in in the lives of fellow believers. I think sometimes there's this great mystique about pastoral ministry. You know, like when I get someone in my office to counsel them, I have like the secret book that I learned in seminary, you know, well, what's your problem? Oh, that, okay. Well, here's what you do, you know, and I got this recipe for what's going to fix your life. To be honest with you, this is pretty much my ministry as a pastor, bringing the word of God to a person and praying that the spirit would bring life to that word in that person's heart and enable them to actually believe that truth. That's it. That's it. And you don't have to get a seminary degree to believe that God can use you in that way. You know what? What I find so interesting is when I counsel people, I would say eight to nine out of ten times, the person already knows what they need to do. <laughs> they really do. I think a lot of times they come to my office for the reassurance for the support, for the comfort of knowing that they're not alone. It's rare that I feel like God gives me such an amazing insight. They go, whoo thank God I was there, you know? Because otherwise, you would have never figured out that secret to untie this, you know, Gordian knot of your life, you know, and figure out how to go forward. It's just being a presence in that person's life. And being willing to be Christ to that person in that moment. Um, 
want to say this for some of you. You already live in this world. Uh, I know that some of you are already walking in these ways. But I also want to suggest that for some of you in this room, this teaching is a real stretch for you. And I, I want to say that the truth is for some of you, um, you may never have God-centered conversations with anybody. And maybe this sounds all very intimidating. And I want to just offer to you, maybe just start with baby steps here. You know, and start with the people closest to you. If you're married, I think the most obvious place to start is your marriage with your spouse. If you're not married, it could be a family member or a close friend. But what I'm just suggesting is, as you're talking about your financial woes, or trouble with the kids and parenting issues or struggling with whether to sell the house and upgrade your car or whatever, maybe that conversation can lead to a simple statement like, how do you think we could honor God in this? And it would open up a spiritual conversation with that person. Or can we pray together right now about the struggle we're having? Maybe as you meet a friend for lunch, after you get done talking about the bears or the bulls or whatever else, you could just simply ask, so what did you think about the sermon last week? And that could at least launch you into a conversation about where you are spiritually. Maybe as you are praying for somebody, God will convict you with a particular message or even a verse to offer to them. And maybe what you need is the courage to share that verse or that conviction with that person. It's not, thus saith the Lord, but you can say it with humility just to say, this is what God has impressed on my heart to share with you. And make of it what you will. I just invite you to pray through it. But maybe somewhere in this is a message for you that God has given me to relay to you. I think this is the picture of vine work without which our church cannot grow spiritually. Let me give you another thing that I think has been really an interesting direction for our church is these journey groups that we're doing. Now, I know not all of you are involved with it, but a pretty big percentage of our church is. And I've been hearing some of the feedback from the journey groups, and I think it's opened up some really interesting doors of opportunity to go much deeper with people in the church that you've never gone to those places with as the depth of sharing has been growing with each week, with each journaling. Um, maybe there's somebody in your life that is falling away from the faith, that once worshipped God fervently. And maybe the truth is you're one of the only people remaining who are <coughs> believers in Christ, who that person will listen to. And maybe God wants to use you to reach out to that person, to bring them back to the faith. I'll say this is if we really practice this as a church, it's going to get messy. <laughs> it is. I think there's a cleanness to the professionalism of ministry that says the only people that should ever be saying that kind of stuff is the pastor, you know? Because when it's somebody else, it's so easy to shoot down the messenger, right? Saying like, who are you to say that to me? Like, you're, you're just like me, you know? You didn't go to seminary. You don't know the Bible, <laughs> like... Who, who are you to talk like that to me? And the truth is it can get messy. 
It may not be said in the precisely wisest way. But I think this picture of a church speaking the truth and love to one another is the only picture of a maturing church. And it's going to require all of us to exhibit grace toward one another. To say, you know, like, I felt like you could have maybe said it a little softer or a little gentler, but I take to heart the courage it took for you to share that with me. And I want to pray through that and really bring that before God as something he may be saying to me. That's the picture we see in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. As we speak the truth and love into each other's lives, we are being knitted together into one body, growing into the fullness of the maturity that God desires of us. It can't just be a couple of professionally paid pastors who have this mandate for the entire church. I'm going to run myself tired to death if I try to do that. This is a calling to the entire body of Christ to speak truth into each other's lives and do the vine work that God has called us to. Let's pray.